Welcome to the Serving Leaders Podcast, where we talk about health and ministry leadership. In part two of Dave's interview of Jim Rhodes, they continue their discussion on the key essentials for thriving in ministry. You're saying that if somebody, or if you're not known as a leader, yep. uh, and your focus is on, quote, ministry, productivity, right. efficiency, performance, the danger there is that you're not known. Mm-hmm. And that you're not known well. You're not known well, and therefore people don't know really know how to encourage you. And all of us need to be encouraged. Yeah. Especially, like I said, in that day of trouble, which visits all of us eventually. And, and some frequently. And, and yeah. Um, and that's why I think, Dave, we see, in, and, and you see much more of this in the Serving Leaders Ministry. Because I think the isolation is common, and the isolation is as you've spoken to so eloquently here in Serving Leaders, that kind of isolation leads into sin and hiding and all kinds of different yeah, because, things. because pastors and, and others are in pain mm-hmm. from the very things that we're talking about, and they end up uh, masking over the pain, Yep. Right. then, then ultimately medicating the pain in some right. way, which is going to be either sinfulness or you know, overt sin or overwork or ignoring, as you said, the primary ministry of your mm-hmm. family, etc., um, yeah. So, so that's that's part of the danger of someone right. not knowing you personally well. And that leads to the third observation I would make, the third danger, not only where people don't know you well, not only where there's, because of that, there's very little real encouragement because people don't know you well enough to know how to encourage you. Right. Thirdly, there's, there's little to no accountability. Yeah. Again, because people don't know where you're struggling. Mm-hmm. People don't, because they don't know you, they don't know where you're struggling and you don't trust them enough to bring them into those struggles and to love you in the, in the midst of that. Right. And so in the context that we're talking about here, a pastoral team, mm-hmm. you're saying that the pastoral team ought to know you well enough. Yes. You ought to have accountability within your team. I'm saying that that would be the best case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. That's, that's, see, I think that's the thing that God is asking us to aspire to. Mm-hmm. is teams that operate like that. I mean, think of how wonderful that would be. And, and, and I'm, I'm not naive here in the sense of, I've had people, as I've talked with other people about this, I've had people go, well, Jim, you're incredibly naive. That's not how the world works. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't trust these people because, you know, word gets out and things happen and, you know, and I'm not naive. And, um, you know, the same thing gets said um, in terms of, uh, Oops, I'm sorry. Another um, another similar case scenario is um, in in the whole area of of evaluation of ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, we often, in the same way that we talked about, you were talking about how we pull over models from the world about productivity and things into the church. In the same way, we pull over models of evaluation from our business, from our American businesses as well. Right, so when we evaluate staff, we evaluate pastors. Yeah, similarly. Yeah. And part of that evaluation process that comes from the world is that you, you do evaluations that are um, uh, confidential and anonymous. Um, anonymous. That's right. And, you, and you, you ask people to give anonymous feedback and then a supervisor of some sort presents that feedback to the person being evaluated mm-hmm. and they talk about that. And, and the problem is 
that now again the, the the assumption for that system is that if you don't give people anonymity you won't get honesty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and i understand that i mean there's a reason that's a very valid point out out in the world and the way the world works and and the realities that exist in the world um i understand that but I believe God and the scripture call us to something higher, something better. We should aspire to something better. We should aspire as believers to a, to a world where we can speak openly and honestly to people. If I have feedback to give you, Dave, I should be able to look you in the eye and give it to you, right. especially if I'm one of your employees. Right. As, a, as a brother in Christ, I should be able to, if I have feedback where I think you can improve as a leader, I should, there should be enough of an environment between us that I can give it open. That's why in our ministry, we instituted a policy that all evaluations would be done openly and honestly. There would be no secrets. There would be no secret personnel records in our mission. Mm -hmm. And, and there weren't. And, and the feedback we got initially was, well, that will never work. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it did work. And what happened was people began to grow because people could give each other honest feedback and there were no secrets and no hidden agendas and none of that. Right. And, and But you have to have a, you have to build relationship in order to, in order to get and, there. And you have to genuinely want feedback. People have to know that you love them and that they have a priority. Right. Right. And that goes back to our original point. Again, wouldn't it people people have often said that this idea of community is a kind of a pie in the sky yeah, it's really, it's a nice ideal gym, but it doesn't work. No, it does work. It just takes effort to get there. But it's worth the journey, Dave. Mm -hmm. It's worth the journey because when you get there, not only do you begin to experience these kinds of relationships that we're talking about, but, but it goes beyond what you can do personally. Your ministry grows exponentially beyond what you can do to what only Christ can do. Um, I rem- yeah, and, and that I think that leads you into this other point that you have talked to me about, mm-hmm. which is this idea of ministry without the you have a ministry without the power of corporate witness. That's correct, and if, that's that's the fourth danger. Ranger, if you're a lone ranger, if you're if you're not ministering in the context of of, of, of a of, team and a community, a team, mm-hmm. yeah, talk talk about that idea of corporate witness. Well, basically. What that's getting at, the idea is getting at, and we've both seen it, uh, the world out there, the crowd, the gang out there, they can explain away our, our love for Jesus as a function of our personalities. You know, Sally loves the Boston Red Sox. Uh, George loves steak and potatoes. Uh, Harry loves ice cream. Jim loves Jesus. I mean, it's just personal preference. It's just a personal preference, That's, and they explain away our commitment to Christ individually mm-hmm. as a function of personal preference, mm-hmm. and 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 that allows them to escape the witness. Yeah. However, when George and Harry and Lucy and Dave and Jim and John and and uh, Peter, who are all different people and perhaps racially even racially diverse, mm-hmm. can same team. can come together on the same team. And love each other fervently from the heart. The world looks at that and goes, that's what I want. How do you guys get that? How does that happen? And the answer to that is Jesus. Which is exactly what Jesus wants. He wants people to look at our teams. 
see a, see a love that they can't see. Years ago, there was a survey done in New York and Los Angeles, two, the two major cities. This was, this was many years ago, actually. It was in the early 90s. And they asked, man, they did man on the street interviews in the two largest cities in America. And they asked just one question of people on the streets. Tell me, what do you think a Christian is? Mm. And they got all kinds of incredible answers. They got, uh, a Christian is someone who hates abortion. A Christian is somebody who hates gays or is against gays. Uh, a, a Christian is a person who is against uh, drinking, smoking, and going with girls who do. Yeah. Uh, you know, all these different things. It was, and it was really interesting because what, what we learned from those surveys is the average non-believing community around us is very aware, very aware of what Christ, the Christian community in America is against. Right. Okay, that when I when I first saw that and heard that, that reminded me of someone in the first century. Who are the people that everybody knew what all the things that they were against? It was the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees, they knew exactly everybody knew what the Pharisees were against. They just didn't know what the Pharisees were for. And and interestingly enough, one of the common answers we got on those man and this was. 30 years ago, was a Christian is a Republican, mm. which is really interesting that the, the non-believing community associated being a Christian with an American political agenda, which is incredibly dangerous. I don't think Jesus would want his kingdom agenda confused with an American political agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that we've allowed that to happen. Right. And um, what we didn't hear and what we should have heard is in those interviews, what we should have heard biblically is we should have heard the non-believing community saying, well, I'm not exactly sure what a Christian is, but what, I ha- what I've seen is that they are people who just love each other fervently. Mm-hmm. They're different, they're diverse, and yet they love each other with a love I've never seen before. And, and they form a community together that I kind of would like to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. Because they help each other and they, they help each other be better people. And I don't know how that works, you know? Right. And how does that even begin to happen? And of course, well, let me tell you, because it doesn't happen because of us, it happens because of the one we know. And you can know him too, and here's how. And that's, that's the, again, the power of the corporate witness that if you don't have that, if you're not working together as a team where you're loving each other fervently from the heart, like, like the scripture talks about, you lose that corporate witness to the world. And we, in America, we've lost that. We are not, all you have to do is go out and ask them. Sure, sure. So speak to the pastor who would say to you, so Jim, how do I, how do I help build a community like this? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with, with the leader, it starts with me. If I'm the leader, it starts with me. And it's, it was hard. I'll take you back to where we started in that basement in my home that day, yeah. in my basement office, where I wanted to run from the implications of this. Because, you know, years and years and years ago, <laughs> when I was a child in the 60s, um, one of the popular shows that was on in the afternoon, I could only watch it when I was homesick from school. It came on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It was called the Art Linkletter Show. 
And it was the, one of the first talk shows. It was an afternoon talk show. And every, every time, at the end of every one of Art Linkletter's shows, he did a, a, a quick segment at the end called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And he would have four or five cherubs lined up on bar stools. And I remember one in particular. And uh, in one in particular interview, the, uh, the question he asked the children on the bar stools is a question that no one would have the guts to ask today. But it was the 60s, and so you, it was a different time. He asked the kids, do you know your daddy loves you? And one of the little guys, like three or four down the line, immediately said, yes. And it was his emphatic yes, affirmative affirmation that you know, made everybody in the audience laugh and caught Art's attention as well. So he went right over to the young man and he goes, you seem so sure. How do you know so surely that your daddy loves you? And the little guy looks up and he goes, because when he reads me bedtime stories, he doesn't skip any of the pages. <laughs> and there's not a one of us who's a dad who doesn't understand that temptation. And yet a child, how does a child understand love? child understands love is time given. Mm. I think adults understand it the same way. And as a leader, that's the rub. Because my time is very challenged as a leader. And it takes, you have, you can't take the time to love your team. You have to make the time Mm. to love your team. And that is a huge challenge. And making the time to love your team involves going through and saying, so how, where with these individuals do I need to be kind? Where do I need to make sure I'm not boasting, I'm not easily angered? You know, you just go back to 1 Corinthians and look. I mean, God gave us the, the, the operative list there. of What does it look like to love? And it look and those things, all of those things, when you start pushing toward application, involve time, time invested. And if a leader says, "But Jim, I don't have the time," is that equivalent to saying, essentially, I don't have the time to love, which is equivalent to saying, then my works are going to be burned up. Yeah, I would establish. That's the risk. That's the very high risk that you run when you make that choice, I believe. On the other hand, when you make the choice to make the investments, and obviously here we're not talking about you spend all of your time over here, but it's making significant investments because in order to know people, you have to make the investments of spending time with them. And, and that means if you're spending time there, you're not spending time on other things. Right. And so it's a definite choice. It's a very challenging choice. Um, but if you do, the multiplicative effects of that are just unbelievable mm-hmm. what God will do through a situation like that. Um, when we were directing the uh, Hampton Beach Summer Project, which is Hampton Beach's located north of Boston. It's the major beach area that uh, the college kids in Boston head up to during the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, one year, 
uh, every year for 15 summers, Barbara and I went up and led a summer mission there with 40 to 50 college students and 15 or so staff people. And the object was to share Christ with all the college students in the community that were there for the summertime. And uh, one summer, uh, it was the summer of 1999, um, we were there, we'd been there for about a week and it just started getting everything set up and had appointed some leaders. And uh, the student leaders came up to our apartment and one of them asked, so Jim, what's the largest, again, kind of focused on productivity, what's the largest single event, outreach event that you've seen happen here over your years here. And I said, well, I thought about it. And I said, that would be one time we saw, we did a beach outreach called Slow Motion Football, where we drew a crowd of about 4,000 people. And uh, that was probably the single biggest event. And they go, well, that's what we're going to try to do this Saturday. And they worked all week, formed a prayer team, formed a training team to train people to share their faith, with their, you know, all the different components. And the day came, and it was a horrible New England Saturday in June. It was gray. It was cold. Um, but there were still people out there. And they drew a crowd that day of about 800 and saw probably 20 or 30 people come to Christ. And when it was all over, I came back to our apartment and came into the apartment, and the leadership team was there. And I, I, you would have thought that I walked into a wake, mm. that someone had died. And the leaders were trying to process what had happened, why God had not answered their question. And, um, or why God had not answered their prayers and, and they had not seen what they'd come mm -hmm. to see. And um, I'd been in ministry long enough to know that the best thing to do at that point was just sit down and let the process play itself out. Mm -hmm. So they, they went around the circle trying to figure it out, and different ones said, well, maybe we didn't train hard enough. And the training director said, no, that's not the case. And maybe we didn't pray hard enough. And the prayer director said, no, that's not the case. You know, all these different things. Finally, they ran out, and they kind of... And finally, this one young man, I can still see him in my mind's eye, he looks up, and he goes, I know what it is. And everybody looks at him like, okay, Solomon, tell us. And he goes we didn't ask God for enough. Mm. And, uh, and the whole room went nuts. And one guy sitting next to him says, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me explain this to you. We prayed for 4,000, we got 800. He said, what is it that you don't understand about that? And he said, well, and this, again, what you're seeing here in, in my description of this is the workings of a community of people who know each other, love each other, and can talk with each other. And, um, and uh, the young man says, well, exactly. He said, suppose we had seen 4,000 people come out today. How would we be feeling right now? Mm. And someone tentatively volunteered up pretty proud. And he goes, exactly. He said, God didn't send us here this summer to reach 4,000 people for Christ. He sent us here to reach everyone mm. in this community, which in the summertime numbered in excess of over a million in that beach community. And, and the kids just went, the other folks around the circle went nuts going, we couldn't even reach 4,000. How are we going to reach everyone? And he goes, I don't know. He said, I guess we'll need to pray. And, uh, and so they did, and they left kind of consternated. And that was a Saturday. 
on Monday night as I was leaving my apartment to go to our weekly gathering um, for the project, uh, the phone rang and it was a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who had been doing a story in Boston with the Park Street Church in Boston about evangelism in New England. Mm. And uh, so she called and she goes, I understand you lead a, a project with crew up at Hampton Beach. And I go, uh-huh. She says, and I understand you actually see New Englanders trust and begin to follow Christ. And I said, we do. And she goes, well, I'd like to come up and talk to you about that. Would that be okay? And I said, yeah, sure. She said, well, uh, this was Monday night. She said, I'll come up on Wednesday. And I said, that'd be fine. And so the uh, two days later, it's a horrible, rainy New England day. She shows up. Um, all of the uh, kids are working their jobs on the beach during the day. And she comes in and I had my staff there and I said, you know, we invited her in to talk to us. And she goes, no, she said, I really would rather just talk with one of your students. Well, the only student around that wasn't working was, was a little freshman girl from Baylor named Lori. And uh, so I asked Lori to come over and introduce her. And I said, this is so-and-so from the Wall Street Journal. Would you take her up to the beach and show her, show her how we mm-hmm. talk to people about Jesus? Lori said, sure. And she didn't know. Right. And so they went up. And I remember sitting on the porch watching them go up the block to the beach, just praying, God, help because this is the Wall Street Journal. And Washington Post or Wall Street Journal? Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. And, and I'm thinking, if this goes badly, this is going to reflect badly on everybody around the country. And um, so they were gone for about an hour and a half. And when they came back, rounded the corner and came up the street, I could see that Laurie had a gospel tracked out and was going over the gospel with this reporter lady. Hmm who was totally New York. I mean, she was all Manhattan, dressed to the nines, right. you know. And she came back, and Lori bounded up into the hotel, and, and uh, I said, would you like to talk to my staff now? And she goes, no. She said, I think I've got what I need. And she said, um, if, uh, if I need more, I'll let you know. But I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you know what my editor says. Yeah. So a week goes by, and she calls me back, and she goes, just wanted to let you know my editor loved the story. And, um, and I thought, you know, it was the story. She'd been working on this story in Boston for yeah. a while. And uh, she said, he's decided he's going to run it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Wow. And so on July 2nd, the Friday of July 4th weekend, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the headline story was Hope for Evangelism in New England was the headline. Mm. Dateline Hampton Beach, and it was the total story of her walk with this kid. Wow. And, and in it, she shared the gospel that this girl shared with her. So all the readers of the Wall Street Journal, several million of them, had an opportunity to read the gospel mm. as presented by little Lori from Baylor. Mm. But what happened was that went viral, and before things knew how to go viral, the yeah. media picked up on it. That day, I got a call from the Boston Globe going, I understand you run a project of people that help people follow Jesus in New England. And I'm going, I said, I wouldn't imagine how you know that. <laughs> but um, he says, um, could I come up and talk? And I said, yeah, but this time I had him come on a Saturday when we were doing an outreach. 
So he came up and it was a bright day and we saw lots of people come to Christ that day and begin to follow him out on the beach. He was thankful. He went out, saw it all. So I'll, I'll write up the story and call you back. He called me back two days later and said, my editor loved it. It's going to run on the front page of the Sunday Boston Globe, which is the biggest paper in New England. And uh, that Saturday was the day in uh, 1999 when John Kennedy Jr. died. Mm, and, the plane crash. and the plane crash. And so the front page the next day on Sunday was a full page photo of John Kennedy Jr. And our story got bumped to the entire front page with photographs and everything of the metro section, of mm-hmm. the B section of that edition. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out that that edition was the largest sold edition of the Boston Globe ever. And they actually printed a copy of the gospel that we used on the beach that day in the article. Mm. And so everyone who read the Boston Globe on the most famous issue of the day, well, that led, it went viral to the point where we had CNN show up with their cameras wanting to interview the students. Over the the course of that summer in 1999, they estimate that because of all of the media exposure, we, we exposed somewhere between four and five million people in New England to the gospel. We had people driving to the beach say showing up on our front porch going mm-hmm. are you the people that tell people how to follow Je- know and follow Jesus mm-hmm. yes well i need to can you tell tell me about it wow wow now that back in the room when they had 80 or 800 come instead of 4000 right and they were dejected and they were dejected and didn't know and the kids said we need to trust god for everyone mm-hmm. No one raised their hand and go, okay, yeah, I know. Let's use the Wall Street Journal strategy. That'll work. Right. No, they trusted God and God had a plan and they used this community. God used this community to do something wildly beyond anything we could have ever imagined. And, and that's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a community of people that love one another fervently from the heart, the way the scripture talks about it. And then out of that comes this immensely powerful corporate witness. And, and if you don't go for that, you lose that. Right. And that's a tremendous loss. That's a loss for the kingdom. And uh, that's the power of what we're talking about. And it, it gets down to, if I was going to sum it all up, Dave, it gets down to the biggest lesson I learned about leading and about life and ministry is it's never wrong to make the time to love your team on the way to fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, Jim, that is a poignant ending to our discussion today. And thank you for sharing that story, which is inspiring because it starts on a dismal day and it ends up with millions of people reading <laughs> about the gospel and yeah. hearing the gospel. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And um, we'd love to have you back to uh, talk some more shop here okay. and to really discuss more about how you, how you build that community. Mm-hmm. And and uh, implement that as well. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode at Serving Leaders Podcast. For additional resources or to find out more about our services, you can visit us at www.servingleaders.org.